We continue our series on China's foreign policy starting in 1949. In this episode, we focus on the years 1959 to 1965. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy this program, if you've come to rely on our independent socialist programming, please show your support by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and becoming a monthly subscriber. We will be joined again this week by Dr. Ken Hammond. He is a professor of East Asian and global history at New Mexico State University. He is the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University, and he is an activist with Pivot to Peace. Before we get started in our conversation with Dr. Hammond, I want to give a brief review and a very brief historical timeline to provide context for this period, 1959 to 1965. Chairman Mao Zedong had visited Moscow right after the Chinese Revolution came to power. That was in 1949. He met with Stalin over several months of discussions between the Soviet Union and China. The two countries forged a friendship treaty. The Soviet Union agreed to send thousands of economic advisors to China. It also sent military advisors. It provided economic and military aid to China. This alliance, along with the Alliance of Socialist Governments in Eastern Europe and in North Vietnam and North Korea, constituted what was then called the socialist camp. This is a time when socialists came to power, had state power, and held state power in countries that constituted two-fifths of the world's population. The primary foreign policy goal of the United States at that time was to stop the revolutionary tide from spreading. This is what the U.S. called the containment strategy, meaning to contain communism. It was really designed to contain the spread of revolution. Primary to the U.S. strategy during this period was the breakup or the attempted breakup or a wedge that the U.S. tried to create in the alliance between the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. We're going to talk about that in this show. Here are some of the points that we're going to cover. Under intense U.S. pressure from the Cold War, the Soviet Union, under the leadership of Khrushchev, Stalin had died in 1953, began entering into a dialogue and discussion with the United States and other Western governments that made up the NATO military alliance. In 1960, the Soviet leadership prepared for a summit meeting in Paris with President Dwight D. Eisenhower. This was extremely important for the Soviet Union. It would have been the first high-level leadership meeting between the Soviet Union and Western leaders since the end of World War II. We talk about that in this episode and its impact on China. 
We also discussed the ideological debate that began to develop between China and the Soviet Union. China resurrected the revolutionary teachings of Lenin to openly polemicize against the foreign policy decisions of the Soviet Union. We also examined the war that broke out between the People's Republic of China and India in 1962. We talk in this episode about the 1963 nuclear test ban treaty that was signed between the Soviet Union and the United States and other nuclear powers. I want to say a quick word about that before we get started. While this test ban treaty that prohibited atmospheric testing of nuclear bombs was a major step forward for the global environment, we in this episode will examine how and why it left China feeling even more isolated from the Soviet Union and actually contributed to the final breakup of the alliance between the two socialist giants. Finally, we look at the U.S. invasion of Vietnam in 1964. Of course, Vietnam shares a border with China. When the U.S. had invaded Korea just 14 years earlier, it led to a war between the U.S. and China. And finally, we look at the impact on China's foreign policy of the CIA-organized counter-revolutionary coup in Indonesia and the destruction of the Indonesian government and, of course, the Indonesian Communist Party, the largest communist party at that time outside of the socialist bloc countries, and its impact on China's thinking. Indonesia was, at that time, China's closest and most important ally in Asia. Ken Hammond, a lot happened in those years, 1959 to 1965. It reshaped China's foreign policy, and it reshaped world politics. I'm so glad that we're able to continue this probe into China's foreign policy with you. Ken Hammond, you are a scholar. You are an educator. You have deep familiarity with Chinese history. You have written extensively about China. You're fluent in Mandarin. You not only teach in New Mexico, but you spend parts of each year or have for many years teaching in China. We're so happy that you're able to join us in this conversation, in this multi-part series about China's foreign policy. Welcome back. Glad to be back, Brian. Always enjoy our conversations. Likewise, let's get your thoughts on this chapter in Chinese foreign policy. Well, I think that the divergence, shall we say, that emerges between the Soviets and the Chinese right at the end of the 50s and then you know, increasingly as we move into the 1960s, it arises both from internal differences, that is to say, different perspectives on the path of economic development, the process of building socialism within the Soviet Union and within the China. There were differences of opinion about that, different perspectives on that. But also, in terms of what we're looking at here, in the relationship of these socialist states to the struggle, the global struggle for revolutionary transformation. And the Soviet Union had, uh, of course, come through the World War II, the great anti-fascist struggle with tremendous losses of life, 27 million people, massive destruction of its economy and infrastructure. And they were intent over the following years on rebuilding that. They were deeply involved in their own 
domestic circumstances, and they needed a context of global peace to be able to pursue that process, to be able to get their their path of socialist construction back on track. The Chinese, of course, in the 50s were just embarking on the course of socialist development, and they too placed a high priority on the need for peace to avoid the kind of conflict that, of course, they faced immediately in Korea. But after 1953, you know, the hope was certainly that further major power confrontations, major conflicts could be avoided so that the Chinese could pursue their own objectives of socialist development. But there's also the underlying question of the world revolution, of global revolution. The idea of building socialism in one country was a big challenge for the Soviets for a long time. Even after the liberation in China and the establishment of the socialist states in Eastern Europe, this was still, although it encompassed a significant proportion of global population and territory, you know, the socialist camp was still surrounded by the capitalist world. The alliances, which the United States was very proactive in developing, things like NATO in Europe or CETO, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization in Southeast Asia, these were clear moves by imperialism led by the United States to contain the socialist bloc. They hadn't been able to contain the Soviet Union. They hadn't been able to contain the revolutionary struggles fully there had been this you know the liberation of china and eastern europe but that only intensified american objectives of containing of stopping it from going any further so the question then was you know well how do we relate to that you know the soviets the chinese how are they going to deal with this question of world revolution and the soviets pretty clearly had decided that while they would support and encourage struggles in different parts of the world that they weren't going to be really serious active players. Whereas the Chinese saw global revolution, the continuing anti-colonial, anti-imperialist struggles across Asia, Africa, and Latin America as sort of components of their own efforts to build socialism within China. And I think that that differential relationship to revolutionary movements in other parts of the world also was a pretty significant factor in this growing differentiation between the Soviet and the Chinese positions. For those who might not know some of this history, for the Soviets, who, as you mentioned, had lost 27 million dead in, in vast parts of their agriculture, industrial infrastructure, the country that had struggled so hard to overcome extreme underdevelopment and poverty in the 1930s through industrialization and collectivization that came at great human cost, uh, but did develop the country. They then are plunged into World War they face 80% of Hitler's army, most of the war fighting for the first years of World War II in Europe were actually on the so-called Eastern Front, which would have been the Soviet Western Front. It was the German invasion. Again, the Soviets lose 27 million. But during those war years, the United States under Roosevelt and later Truman at the tail end, and Britain under, at least in the beginning, Winston Churchill are allies with the Soviet Union. So the idea that there would be meetings between 
Soviet leaders and American leaders or British leaders, in spite of the fact that they had differing social systems, antagonistic social systems, they weren't unusual. In fact, they were sort of a dominant part of the wartime alliance starting in 1943. So there was the Tehran meeting that's in Iran, obviously. Stalin Churchill, Roosevelt meet together. They talk about the war, how it's going. There's actually, in the midst of this alliance, a lot of tension too, because the Soviets are basically demanding from Churchill and Roosevelt, when are you going to open up a Western front? Where's the invasion of continental Europe from the West? Why are we fighting the Germans all by ourselves? There's a lot of pressure. But also at the same time, the Soviets, to the shock of the whole world, have overcome the German invasion, have launched a counteroffensive, the largest military counteroffensive in human history, and now are pushing the Germans back, back out of the Soviet Union, back into Eastern Europe, back into Central Europe. That's all happening in 1943, the beginning of 44. And then there are two more very, very historically important summits, one at Yalta and the last at Potsdam in Germany. That was at the tail end of the war in 1945. So symmetry between the West and the East, between the Soviets and the Western leaders, that was a thing. But during the Cold War, after the war ended, and as the United States and Britain threatened to annihilate the Soviet Union, which at that time had no nuclear weapons, which was militarily fearing another war, having just come out of the devastation of the last one, all meetings between the leadership ended. And then starting in the late 1950s, really in the mid-50s, the U.S. and the Soviets start to reach back to each other. They start to have discussions with each other. And Eisenhower basically is extending an olive branch to Khrushchev, who's taken over as the Soviet leader following Stalin's death in 1953. And now, for the first time in Paris, a summit meeting is going to be held once again. It hadn't happened for 15 years. So the Soviets are excited because the Soviets think, ah, at last, the Cold War tensions are going to come to an end. We need peace. We need to convert military production to civilian consumer production. We can't do that without a lessening of tensions. This offers a great opportunity, but they don't bring China to the table. And at that time, Ken, China was under fierce assault by the same imperialists that Khrushchev was preparing to go clink champagne glasses with. Absolutely. And of course, although there hadn't been a real summit since the end of the war, there had been the two international Geneva conferences that negotiated an end to the Korean War and negotiated the French withdrawal from Indochina. And China had been included at both of those. So it wasn't as though there was no precedent, there was no experience of having China at the table. So that made it even more of a direct move to exclude China when the 1960 summit was being planned. And absolutely, the Chinese were were in a position at that point. There had been the crises in the Taiwan Strait. And we know in retrospect that in 1958, the Eisenhower administration had even considered the use of nuclear weapons at that point. They chose not to, obviously, and thank goodness. But the American investment in 
in Taiwan and in maintaining a tense atmosphere on the China coast. They were still running clandestine sabotage operations into Fujian and other parts of southern China. And of course, they had ramped up their support for separatist efforts in Tibet. There was a training camp up in central Colorado where they trained Tibetan agents to be infiltrated from Nepal to carry out sabotage and propaganda activities in Tibet. So China very much felt the pressure of American imperialism. Just as Khrushchev was preparing to go and sit down for a chat that they weren't invited to. Not a surprise that they felt a little, shall we say, anxiety about this proposed summit. That might be an understatement, Ken. (laughs) They were alarmed, I think, and worried because Khrushchev had also sort of rewritten some of the basic doctrine that all of the communist parties of the world had adopted after the Russian Revolution, after the formation of the Communist International or the Third International. One precept was that war was inevitable. And during the era of imperialism, that war was sort of a foundational characteristic feature of imperialism. And of course, China was feeling the brunt of that imperialist war drive. But the Soviets were now saying, Khrushchev was now saying, we've entered the era where there can be peaceful coexistence where the existence of nuclear bombs that guaranteed mutually assured destruction for all also means that in a way it becomes a recipe for not going to war, that both sides having nuclear weapons by the late 1950s means that instead of, as Lenin suggested, there would only be war and the outcome of war would be revolution, Khrushchev and the Soviet leadership were saying, no, actually... We can have peaceful coexistence. We're in a new reality because of nuclear weapons and the sheer destructiveness of those weapons, unlike anything known to the human race up to that time. And there can be a way so that instead of seeking the revolutionary road, meaning the overturn of the capitalist government, smashing the state, erecting a new socialist power based on a new class arraignment where the poor, the workers, the peasants take power, There can be sort of a period of long-term reconciliation. And so the Chinese are thinking, wait, this is a major shift by the most important country, socialist bloc country, most important in the sense that it was the biggest and most powerful. They're shifting away from a confrontation with imperialism, but imperialism is not shifting away from a confrontation with us. And we're not invited. We're not there at the summit. We're not like at the two Geneva international summits that dealt with the issues of Korea peace or Vietnam decolonization. We're not there. And the only reason we might not be there is the imperialists don't want us there. And the Soviets, Khrushchev, is willing to sacrifice his alliance with a sister socialist country to make peace with the imperialists. So they are in a state of complete alarm and they start to even though it's not a direct attack, they're starting to polemicize within the world communist movement against the Soviet leadership. And in 1960, in the summer of 1960, Ken, Khrushchev gets angry that the Chinese are not accepting the Soviet version of what must happen, which is that the Soviets must relax tensions, must reduce Cold War tensions, must deal with American imperialism on the terms of American imperialism. So Khrushchev is angry at the Chinese who are angry at the Soviets. And in retaliation, Khrushchev withdraws scientific experts and technicians 
that had been in China for the previous decade, helping China overcome poverty and underdevelopment and all of the legacies of the earlier century of humiliation. That was huge. It was very significant. The impact of that was devastating for many development projects, infrastructure projects. It hurt scientific education and technological research and development. And of course, one of the areas that it had the most direct impact was that Soviet scientists and military technicians had been assisting the Chinese in the pursuit of developing their own atomic weapons capability. And one of the great accomplishments, actually, of the early 60s for China was that even with the withdrawal of Soviet assistance and expertise, they pushed forward and were able to explode their first atomic device at their test grounds out west in October 1964, which, by a sort of happy coincidence, was also the time that Khrushchev fell from power in the Soviet Union. There was a certain, I'm sure, ironic satisfaction for the Chinese in that. But yes, they felt isolated on the international stage and abandoned in terms of the kind of fraternal solidarity which had been in place in the 50s but was now withdrawn. So the Chinese, I think, very much felt that they were left to their own devices. That had to shape not just their perception of the Soviet Union, but their sense of how they needed to navigate the way forward in the global context. I was reading a document. It's an article, really, from a Soviet highly acknowledged Soviet scientist. His name is Dr. Mikhail Klochko. He was a Soviet chemist and a Stalin prize winner who went to China twice as a member of a Soviet scientific mission. And he wrote this article in 1970, a decade after the withdrawal, the sudden, abrupt, shocking withdrawal of Soviet technicians and scientists and economic experts from China in retaliation for China protesting the rapprochement or detente or reconciliation or peace efforts by Khrushchev at their, as they perceived it at their expense. Here's what he writes. As one of those who was suddenly and surprisingly ordered home in 1960, I can testify that all of the anger at the move was not limited to the Chinese. Without exception, my fellow scientists and other Soviet specialists whom I knew in China were extremely upset at being recalled before the end of our contracts. Like myself, others must have had difficulty hiding their amazement when told by Soviet representatives in Beijing that dissatisfaction with our living and working conditions was an important reason for our recall meaning that was a made-up reason. In fact, a few of us had never lived better in our whole lives than we did in China. Our Chinese hosts were even more mystified. Again and again, they asked, why are we leaving? And whether anything could be done to prevent our going. The suddenness with which the events developed indicated that the decision was irreversible. And then he goes on. So the Soviet scientists who were there, they weren't just scientists. They weren't just doing a job. They were there in solidarity. They wanted to be there. Not only were they well-hosted, but they were forging a solidarity that all of them had been taught for decades before was primary. And suddenly, without explanation and a made-up reason that they weren't being treated well, they were angry too. So you had Soviet specialists upset. 
the Chinese mystified, amazed, and undoubtedly feeling disgusted. And again, when you think about it being China, they're overcoming the century of humiliation. As Mao Zedong said in 1949, China has stood up. And now to be treated sort of like, you know, they're going to be punished because they didn't go along with a country that was more economically developed, even though the Soviet Union was a sister socialist country, the Chinese must have felt a sense of national chauvinism an attitude, maybe not colonialism in the old sense, but kind of a colonial type attitude that they could be mistreated. How important from a psychological point of view would that have been as a factor? Oh, I think that was a vital factor. You know, 20 years later, in the early 80s, I was living in Beijing in 82 and for a few years after that and met many people who had studied Russian when they were in the university. That was their first second language. And there were still on some of the campuses in Beijing, there were still buildings and signs in Russian because that had been, you know, the presence had been so thorough. So the Russians were just a part of that first decade of the People's Republic in a way that it's hard for us to, I think, maybe to understand. And they were they were there to help. And there were so many close personal bonds that formed. So I think that the withdrawal, especially such an abrupt, just, you know, one day the word came down and people had to pack up and leave. It was a tremendous psychological rupture. And you mentioned the idea that China was coming out of the century of humiliation. That was a century in which China had repeatedly been defeated militarily and exploited economically and oppressed politically by the Western powers. I'm sure that for many people, this kind of move by the Soviets felt like yet another humiliation, and this time not at the hands of Western imperialist aggression, but at the hands of people who, you know, what was supposed to be a fraternal socialist ally. I think that obviously the political impact was significant, as was the economic, but I think you're quite right. The the psychological dimension of this, both at the level of ordinary people, but particularly at the level of the leadership, must have been frankly pretty devastating. And in the bigger picture, Ken, it shows that imperialism was also consciously using divide and conquer tactics. I mean, we know that colonialism and imperialism used divide and conquer tactics. They developed it as an art form. Look what happened in India, the division of India at the time of independence to a Muslim majority state or a Hindu majority state. The British did that. The creation of Pakistan and India, the division of India, that was colonial divide and conquer tactics. The U.S. was also well aware that as the Soviets were so preoccupied with having peace, which is understandable because of what happened to the Soviet Union. I mean, if you're the Soviets, you're thinking like, wait a second, we lost 27 million. Wait a second, we have to develop. We need peace. The U.S. will blame us for any confrontation anywhere. And as a consequence, we're going to do everything to sort of keep our powder dry. And you, you Chinese or you Vietnamese or Koreans or whoever, you should be aware that our destiny impacts your destiny. So be sensitive to us. And so the Soviets feel righteous. They feel they're doing the right thing. They're preserving peace. The Chinese feel wait, we're being left in the dark and you're making a deal with imperialism for your peace, but we're not at peace. And so imperialism is, and the US imperialist ruling class 
as a highly class-conscious global power is well aware that these divergent interests between the Chinese and the Soviets can be stoked by putting pressure at one time on one and then pressure at the other time on the other, again, pitting both against each other. Well, yes, these divide and conquer strategies, this was such a fundamental component of American policy conduct in all around the world. As countries emerged from European colonial rule, you know, a lot of the countries that wound up coming out the other side of colonialism had not been integrated states prior to colonial rule. And I'm thinking here particularly of a country like Indonesia. Indonesia, you know, is an aggregation of some 13,000 islands, many, many different languages. A majority of people are Muslim, but there are other kinds of communities, religious and spiritual communities, and a lot of ethnic diversity across those many islands. They forged a national unity in the anti-colonial struggle, and Indonesia emerged from that in 1949. The United States even though it had put pressure on the Dutch to let go and to acknowledge Indonesia's independence, the United States all through the 50s and 60s and on into the 70s provided clandestine support to separatist movements in many different parts of Indonesia. Not enough that they would actually be able to achieve independence, but just enough to keep those forces alive as a balance, as a way of manipulating the politics of Indonesia, of saying you know, to the government in Jakarta that you need to ally yourselves with us because we can provide the kind of security, the kind of assistance that will benefit your country. And we see similar things going on today, for example, in Myanmar, where you have you know an ethnic majority that dominates the government, but more than 20 different ethnicities that are in states of rebellion around the frontier. And again, the United States provides clandestine assistance in a kind of a trickle to those rebel groups just to keep pressure on the government in Myanmar. And we see right now that that's a very problematic situation over there. But these kinds of campaigns of attrition, of not really wanting to have independence, it's like we play with the Kurds as well enough assistance so that they remain a problem for other governments, but only so that they will weaken and undermine the stability of those surrounding states. It's a very, very cynical manipulation of people and their hopes and political aspirations, simply designed to maximize American influence and perpetuate American domination. Perhaps one of the best examples of the same phenomenon, and we could actually spend a good deal of time talking about the different examples, and actually it's important to do so, is, you know, Iran had a revolution in 1979, toppled the Shah of Iran, who had been placed on the throne in 1953 after the Mozak Day government, a popularly elected government in Iran, nationalized the Anglo-Iranian oil company AIOC, now known as BP, later became British Petroleum, now it's BP. The government dared to nationalize the British oil company, so Britain and the United States imposed crippling economic sanctions on Iran, and then organized through CIA and British intelligence a coup d'etat. They put the old government out. 20,000 Iranians were killed. The Shah came to power. He ruled the country with an iron hand for 26 years. He denationalized the oil so American and British oil companies could take it back and make profits from it while Iranians remained poor. Then the people rise up in 1979. They have a revolution. 
the Shah flees. And the next year, the United States says to Iraq, to the Saddam Hussein government, why don't you go you know, capture that oil-rich Arab-speaking part of Iran in Abadan? We'll support you. We'll give you weapons. We'll give you even chemical weapons. Saddam does this, launches an invasion of Iran in 1980. And then the Iran-Iraq war lasts the next 10 years. Both sides take hundreds of thousands of casualties. And as we learned from the Iran-Contra scandal, Ken, the U.S. was giving arms to Iran too. In other words, as Henry Kissinger said in the 1980s, we want both sides to kill each other. So yeah, you can't get more cynical, but that's a dominant part of U.S. foreign policy. Absolutely. You know, these days, I know we want to get back to talking about the 60s, but these days, a lot of people will ask us, I'm sure you've had this experience as well, when we talk about China, we talk about what the realities of China are, what's really happening over there. Uh, People will say, oh, but, you know, I see all these stories in the media about how bad things are and what bad things are going on. And, you know, you say, well, there's ways to, to critique that. There's ways to understand that those things aren't true. But people, don't often realize the degree of cynicism, the degree of willful, intentional lying and manipulation that is carried on by the so-called intelligence community and the sort of foreign policy establishment. I think that it is good to look back and think about these myriad examples of the most direct kinds of interventions and activities carried on you know, in the dark, in the clandestine realm, but the willful behavior of the American government. Because to understand what's happening today, these kinds of historical examples are very, very illuminating. Indeed. And again, we'll come back as we go forward in this series. I mean, the American people who didn't know anything about Uyghurs are taught to love Uyghurs and care about Uyghurs, just as Americans didn't know anything about Kurds until they were told that they had to support Kurds because they were an oppressed Muslim minority in a Muslim-majority country, Iraq, because the U.S., was finding rationales and pretexts to invade Iraq, or the way Americans were told to care about Kosovo Albanians in Yugoslavia. You know, Americans didn't know anything about that, but suddenly the U.S. was bombing socialist Yugoslavia with 28,000 bombs and missiles in the name of defending Muslims in a predominantly majority Albanian-speaking part of Yugoslavia. Again, the cynical manipulation And in each and every time, because the media functions as an echo chamber and tells all these sob stories, people really feel if you care about human rights, you have to be on the side of American imperialism, which is defending in the noblest possible way the human rights of, quote, minority peoples. Meanwhile, the United States has, you know, carried out two genocides at home against the indigenous population, against the enslaved, kidnapped African populations that came to the United States. Anyway, it's very important for, as we discuss China, Soviet, and international relations to keep these things sort of at the front of our thinking because they're constantly a determinant in terms of how foreign policy plays out. Let's go back though, and we're gonna not spend too much more time in this segment, Ken. We're gonna do multiple discussions with you so that we can march through the history since 1949, looking at China's foreign policy and its evolution. But I want to go back to the early 1960s. I think we framed that situation pretty well. In 1962, there is a conflict between China and India and a brief war. 
But during that time, the Soviets, who had strong diplomatic relations with India, which was a capitalist government, actually didn't stand with China. So from the Chinese point of view, this was a border dispute. I want you to help the audience understand it. But from a Chinese point of view, it's like now the Soviets are negotiating behind our back with Western imperialism and then a regional conflict between us and a capitalist government, India. The Soviets are neutral at best. Anyway, what was the impact there on China? Well, the 1962 border war was itself, of course, a legacy of Western imperialism. The British, who had established themselves as the colonial rulers across much of South Asia, it's not just what is today India, but Pakistan, Bangladesh, Myanmar, all of these areas were part of British India. And in that context, of course, the British had ambitions further over the Himalayas. They sent in 1904 the Young Husband mission to invade Tibet and occupy Lhasa, the capital, for a while, even while that was still part of the Qing dynasty, the Qing Empire, which didn't fall until 1912. So the British talk about pursuing a goal of separatism, the idea of trying to split off a part of the Qing Empire. Of course, that was being done also by the Tsarist state up in the Northeast. But the result of some of that adventurism was that they negotiated agreements defining the frontier, the border between British India and the Qing Empire, the Qing state. And a lot of that was negotiated and lines were drawn on maps. And then, you know, that was sort of set aside for a while. After the collapse of the Qing dynasty, China wasn't considered to be much of a strategic concern anymore by the British. And, you know, they maintained a diplomatic presence in Tibet, in Lhasa. But the McMahon line, as it came to be known, that was drawn in these negotiations in the first decade of the 20th century, clearly defined territorial division between China and India. Well, after independence, after India became independent, they didn't fully accept the agreements that had been made by the British. And of course, in some ways, that's understandable. But after liberation, after the establishment of the People's Republic in 1949, China was very concerned about, as they say, uh, sovereignty and territorial integrity. Respect for sovereignty and territorial integrity are foundational concepts of Chinese foreign policy. And they wanted to make sure that all the territories which had been under the control of the previous governments, whether it was the Republic from 1912 to 1949 or the Empire before 1912, that those territories, which were part of China, were recognized and secured. And that involved these stretches on the border between post-colonial India and post-liberation China. And there's two different segments. There's a segment in the east around the borders of Bhutan, and then there's a segment in the west in an area that's called the Aksai Chin, which is up on the mountains separating India and China. And we should remember, too, that the Indians during this period had already made two major seizures of territory. They took over what had been a separate Tibetan kingdom called Ladakh in the west. And in 19 1961 or 62, they moved militarily into the tiny principality of Sikkim, which was located in between Nepal and Bhutan. 
And they annexed those territories to India. So India was clearly pursuing its own territorial ambitions in terms of extending its power. Now, taking over Ladakh and Sikkim, these were tiny states that had no defensive capability. But the Chinese saw this as an indication of India's expansionist intentions, and they wanted to make sure that the territory that had been defined as Chinese remained under their control. And that led to encounters between Chinese and Indian forces. And the Chinese at a certain point simply moved their forces into the territories that were demarcated along the McMahon line, occupied those territories and said, look, this is as far as we're going to go. They weren't trying to take over India. They weren't invading India. They were simply establishing on a factual basis on the ground their control of those territories. Now, interestingly, after the fighting was ended, after that brief military campaign was concluded, the Chinese actually withdrew from some of the territory that they had occupied. They didn't abandon their claims to that territory, but they wanted the resolution of this conflict to be carried out diplomatically, to be carried out in a more fraternal way between the governments of India and China. Obviously, some of that has been resolved over the years, but other areas haven't. There's been fighting up in the area around Ladakh as recently as last summer. So these are ongoing tensions. But the fact that the Soviet Union refused to support China, refused to legitimate China's position, and took what was publicly a neutral stance, but effectively amounted to support for India. This, again, was a sign of, of this shifting of priorities away from socialist solidarity and support for revolutionary struggles to one of kind of great power you know, status and taking a kind of lofty view and trying to build this alliance or this relationship with the capitalist state in India. I think that it was, you know, these things come one after another after another. And for the Chinese, it's just an accumulation of grievances that led them to have this very, very skeptical attitude towards the Soviet leadership. So we can see the dispute between China and the Soviet Union gaining steam. As you put it, one event after another after another. So the China-India War 1962, the Soviets have neutrality, but neutrality really is perceived to be opposing China. So in 1963, the nuclear test ban treaty is signed. Again, perception is so important here for people, especially people in the United States or people in the American peace movement, to see how one perception in the United States or in the Soviet Union might be very different from a perception inside China. Because the Chinese don't have nuclear weapons or insufficient numbers of nuclear weapons. You can clarify which it is. But they feel under attack by the United States. They're kept out of the United Nations by the United States. There's constant provocations against China. The U.S. is carrying out covert operations against China. You know, We're always in the U.S. media talking about red China and the threat of China as if Mao Zedong is a madman. And the Soviets signed the nuclear test ban treaty with other countries. And what that treaty does is it bans atmospheric tests of nuclear weapons. Now, that's tremendously important because exploding atomic bombs and hydrogen bombs in the atmosphere, which was going on by the Soviets and by the United States and Britain, France, I mean, it's a huge contamination of the Earth's atmosphere. I mean, it's terrible. And both sides were doing it. And the only way 
it could stop is if both sides came to a mutual agreement. So the Soviets are like, yes, this is something that's a real step forward. We're strong enough now that the imperialists have to negotiate with us. They know they can't really fight and win a nuclear war anymore. We can get rid of atmospheric testing. That's a just a big plus for humanity and not just to mention the Soviet Union. But again, from the Chinese point of view, it's the Soviets making arms agreements with the imperialists who are at the same moment attacking China, threatening China, hoping to you know, destroy China. And so the test ban treaty is considered another betrayal. Absolutely. And you know, if we take the test ban treaty, the timing of that is really critical. The test ban treaty is signed in 1963. It's not until October of 1964 that the Chinese are ready to carry out their first atomic bomb test. So had the terms of the Test ban treaty, the 63 treaty, you know, been applied to China, it would have halted their development of an atomic bomb. And the Soviets knew that. And the Soviets had, of course, as we talked about earlier, withdrawn their technical assistance. The Chinese perceived the test ban treaty as, at least in part, specifically aimed at them. And of course, later, in the 60s, when the Non-Proliferation Treaty is signed, basically both the Test Ban Treaty and the Non-Proliferation Treaty were designed to sort of lock the door on the club of nuclear powers, you know, so that Britain and France, the United States and the Soviet Union could go about their business. They had nuclear weapons and that put them in a position to sort of dictate to the rest of the world. You know, if a country like China was to get nuclear weapons, that would be seen by them, by the pre-existing nuclear powers as disrupting, you know, international order. And indeed, that's exactly how it was portrayed when China did successfully set off its first atomic device. So, you know, the Chinese see the Russians, see the Soviets as being increasingly cozy with the leading capitalist powers. And in something like the Test Ban Treaty, basically forming a block of solidarity with the Western atomic powers to say, you know, we have these and we want to maintain a monopoly on these. And that we was was very important because that was one we that didn't include China. And the Chinese certainly perceived that as the further capitulation of the Soviets to an international order, which was shaped by the interests of the Western imperialists. So during this period from 1959 to 1963, as the Soviet Union is making new arms agreements with the West, test ban treaty, other agreements, peaceful coexistence or an equilibrium between the socialist bloc led by the Soviet Union and the United States and its NATO allies on the other China is feeling, one, additionally isolated, but China's politics went sharply to the left. They resurrected the basic writings of Lenin and said that the Soviet policy is a revision of Marxism. They called the Soviet leadership revisionists and reformists. And in the departure from the orthodoxy whereby all the communist parties in the world were supposed to basically say the same thing. Now you had this ideological political split represented by China, and that generates a leftist development within the socialist movement in every country. Maoist parties form around the world. Young people especially are attracted to Maoism. Maoism is put up on a pedestal as the alternative center for socialism and communism. So there now becomes, in a way, two communisms on the global arena. 
And during that entire period, China is articulating basic core concepts from Marxism and Leninism, the pamphlet, the differences between Comrade Togliati and us, and then a follow-up pamphlet, more on the differences between Comrade Togliati and us. Comrade Togliati was the leader of the Italian Communist Party. They were attacking the Italian Communist Party, which was an ally of Khrushchev, rather than attacking Khrushchev directly. So it wasn't a direct attack on Khrushchev, but everyone understood that this was a political ideological struggle, that it went from the expression of grievances to an open ideological political struggle. Ultimately, Ken, this takes another turn where it devolves from an ideological struggle between, quote, comrades to a struggle between states where both sides Uh, China and the Soviet Union start to share accusations that the other side perhaps is even worse than the imperialists. So the degeneration of the split takes place over the course of the 1960s. And ultimately, in this irony of ironies, China opens the door to Kissinger and Nixon. But we're jumping ahead. I just want to frame it that this is a dynamic process, and it's all compressed within a few years, the 1960s. And while China's feeling isolated, two other major events are happening, Ken. And I want to just sort of close out this segment, sort of acknowledging these two developments. One is the U.S. has now fully invaded Vietnam by 1964. The U.S. is carpet bombing Vietnam. Vietnam shares a border with China. The United States had fought a war with Korea between 1950 and 53, and ultimately China intervened in that war with hundreds of thousands or perhaps a million volunteers. So there was a direct military clash between China and America. Now, here you have the Vietnam War going on at the same time. That's 1963, 64, 65. And the other major event on the international scale is what happens in Indonesia. You mentioned Indonesia before, the centrality of Indonesia. In 1965, there is a counter-revolution staged by the CIA and the Indonesian generals against a progressive government, against the Communist Party of Indonesia, which is massive, huge, millions of members, and which looked to China. China looked to Indonesia as a way out of its isolation. So, So suddenly Indonesia is gone. You have the Vietnam War on its border. You have the loss of Indonesia as an ally in this bloodbath. A million Indonesians died in this ruthless CIA Pentagon-led coup d'etat in 1965. A hidden massacre, by the way, from the point of view of the West. People in the U.S. only learned a little bit about Indonesia in 1965 when Hollywood made a movie about it. And that was sort of a fictional account. But anyway, let's talk about these two events and how they're impacting China's world outlook. Well, the impact couldn't have been stronger. China, you know, in the early 60s is losing its fraternal relationship with the Soviets that had been truly beneficial in the first decade of socialist construction. China's feeling isolated now from the Soviets. The Soviets are conducting themselves in ways that are excluding and marginalizing, refusing to back up China. And then right in the middle of the decade, you have first the escalation in Vietnam, and then the horrors of October 1965 in Indonesia. For the Chinese, 
Chinese. The Chinese had sat at the negotiating table in Geneva in 1954 when agreements were hammered out to end the French colonial era in Vietnam and a temporary separation of control between the northern and the southern parts of Vietnam was agreed to only for the purposes of preparing for elections which were to be held throughout Vietnam. But those elections were canceled by the agency of the United States. The United States set up a puppet government in the South. The U.S. didn't want to have those elections because they openly admitted that Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Minh would win. They were wildly popular throughout the country. And then under the Kennedy administration, the U.S. began to put in more and more so-called military advisors, 50,000 and more. And then, of course, in August of 1964, there was this trumped up pseudo incident in the Tonkin Gulf that President Johnson used basically to get Congress to give him a blank check to go to war in Vietnam. And so there was this steady ratcheting up of imperialist aggression right there on the threshold of China that went totally against the agreements that had been reached in Geneva that China had been a part of. So, you know, uh, certainly what, what were the Chinese supposed to think? And then at the same time, down in Southeast Asia, down in Indonesia, what had been the largest communist party outside of the socialist bloc itself, the Indonesian Communist Party, which had been working very very steadily to build itself up. The independence movement in Indonesia, the leaders, Sukarno and Hatta, had been obviously nationalist leaders, and they hadn't emphasized in the independence struggle, they hadn't emphasized a particular vision for a post-colonial Indonesia. But in the course of the 50s and the early 60s, Sukarno increasingly came to promote a progressive social and socialist program in China, I'm sorry, in Indonesia. But that that was increasingly seen by the Americans as threatening the stability, as they would put it, the openness of Indonesia to Western capitalist exploitation is really what they were concerned about. Oil, tin, hardwoods, teak, things like that coming out of Indonesia as exports. There was a lot of concern about this. And finally, in the fall of 65, the CIA and the American political elites decided that Sukarno had to go. And the way to do that was not to directly intervene and overthrow him, but was to destroy the Indonesian Communist Party. And in a horrific massacre, as you said, a million Indonesians were killed. People were killed simply for being a member of the Communist Party or for being suspected of being a member of the Communist Party. And it was the American embassy, it was staff at the American embassy who drew up those lists of people who were to be executed. You know, the United States has always maintained that it had a hands-off attitude to this, but it's clearly documented, and these are in publications from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Cornell University. This isn't some you know, left-wing propaganda, but that American agents helped to draw up these lists that were then used by the Indonesian military to go out and round up people and kill them. So that too, that was a devastating blow and further isolated China so that you know the relationship with the Soviet Union continued to be, at that point, sort of collateral damage from all of this. China was increasingly isolated, increasingly frustrated with its position in the international world. And that brings us, Ken, to the end of 1965, a momentous year for, of course, for Indonesia, for the people in Vietnam and Southeast Asia, 
And of course, for China, China is increasingly isolated. It's moved to the left, but its leftist turn, while it sparks interest in Maoism and revolution and Leninism internationally, its major allies have withered or are under such pressure themselves in the case of Vietnam that it may seem like more of a liability than an actual assistance. This sets the stage for what comes next in China, which is not premised on foreign policy, but impacts foreign policy. And by that, I mean, in 1966, in its condition of isolation, China, under the leadership of Mao Zedong, launches the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution that begins in 1966. Ken, when we come back, we're going to talk about the Cultural Revolution, its impact on Chinese foreign policy, the events in Czechoslovakia in 1968, then the border clash, the actual military border clash with the Soviet Union in 1969, and then the sudden abrupt shift in China policy, which leads to the beginning of the normalization of relations with the United States, Kissinger's secret trip to Beijing, and of course, his meetings with Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong, followed up by Richard Nixon's historic trip to China in 1972. That's going to be the next segment of our series looking at Chinese foreign policy from 1949 till today. We were joined by Dr. Ken Hammond. Professor Hammond is a professor of East Asian and Global History at New Mexico State University. He is the founding director of the Confucius Institute at New Mexico State University, and he is an organizer and activist with the peace organization Pivot to Peace. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.